The book of Hebrews says this. Here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And as Steve prayed, that's one of the reasons we have a holiday club. It's one of the reasons we do anything that we do as a church, so that men and women and children will know there is something better to come, better than what they have. And in order to show that to other people, we have to be convinced of it ourselves. There are lots of things to enjoy in this life. Lots of genuinely good gifts from God. But the Bible tells us there are greater gifts and greater enjoyment still to come. There is an eternal city ahead of us. And our passage this morning is here to fuel our expectation for that city. Our passage describes the city of God. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 1249. And the larger print Bibles, 1938. Last week, John saw the outline of this city. And now... He's shown more of the details. We're going to read from chapter 21, verse 9, through to chapter 22, verse 5. John writes, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. 
The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. This vision shows us five aspects of the city of God. First of all, in chapter 21, verses 9 to 11, we learn it is infinitely superior. And that raises the question, superior to what? Well, look again at verse 9. John says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The seven last plagues are long gone at this point. They've all been poured out already. So why would John mention them here? Well, apparently he mentions them because he recognizes this particular angel. They've met before. That previous meeting was described in chapter 17. In chapter 17, John wrote this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. The great prostitute is Babylon, a city pictured as a woman. And before John was shown Babylon's punishment, he was shown her glories. He said she was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. The first time John met this angel, the angel showed him a lady representing all the delights of this God-defying world. That's what Babylon stands for. The angel made no attempt to hide the glories of Babylon. He didn't deny that the great prostitute offers pleasure. 
Now, it turned out to be brief and temporary pleasure, but there was no attempt to deny the attractiveness of it. Babylon has her pearls and her precious stones. But now that same angel returns to John to show John another woman. A woman whose delights and whose glories are infinitely superior to the delights and glories of the other lady. This second lady is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And just as the first lady was described as a city, Babylon, so in verse 2, the second lady, in fact, verse 10, she is described as the holy city, Jerusalem. So this angel's job is to show the superiority of the bride, Jerusalem, over the prostitute, Babylon. And right at the outset of this, we have to get one thing clear in our minds. What John is going to describe in these verses is the eternal fellowship of God and his people. The bride of the Lamb is a people. A people purchased from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Here, the angel says, I'll show you the bride. And what John sees is a city. So we have to keep in mind, what's being described is a people pictured as a city. If we bear that in mind, it's going to save us from a whole lot of misunderstanding. When we read here about walls and gates and streets, we are not being told about literal bricks and bars and paving stones. We're being told about a people in fellowship with God. To put it another way, we are not being given an architectural plan here. We're being given insight into the eternal life of God with his people. It's described for us in terms of a city with God at the center. And this city is infinitely superior to the city John saw earlier. Babylon was full of temporary but hollow delights. The new Jerusalem is full of eternal, substantial delights. Now last week we heard about a new heaven and a new earth. And as we listened last week, we may have wondered... How should I talk then about the future? Should I talk about looking forward to heaven? Or should I say I'm looking forward to a new earth? And the answer is both. Today, heaven is where God is. It's the realm where his people go to be with him when they die. But in the future, we're told, heaven will come to earth. That's what John sees in verse 10. The merging of heaven and earth. Heaven is where God is and the future, the new earth, will be sin free. It will be fit for God's presence. And we will truly experience heaven on earth. 
The presence of God is what will make it infinitely superior. In verse 11, John says this about the new Jerusalem. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Back in chapter 4, John was shown the throne room of heaven. And this description is taken from that earlier vision. Only now, all of that dazzling glory is among God's people on the new earth. It's come down to earth. The earth is flooded with the beauty of God's holiness. Nothing Babylon can offer is able to compete with this. Even Babylon's greatest glories don't shine as brightly as this. And this description is here so that you and I can keep in mind this picture when we go out tomorrow and find ourselves walking through Babylon or driving through Babylon. When we go out tomorrow and we find ourselves tempted by everything that this world offers us, we can know we have an infinitely superior city ahead of us. And we're shown this city of God will be perfectly secure. Look at verse 12. John says it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. As we try to understand these verses, we have to remember the key. This city is the bride of the Lamb. It's a visionary picture of God's eternal fellowship with his people. We are not being given a street map here so we can find our way around heaven. And these particular verses are here to assure us our future life with God will be perfectly secure. John sees in verse 12, a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Ancient cities had watchmen. And that's how the angels are pictured here. They are the guardians of the city. Now we mustn't over-interpret this picture. Because at this stage, all of God's enemies are gone. There's no one left to attack the city. But that's part of the point. God's people will be as safe as an impregnable city... Because God's enemies will all be gone. And because his presence is an unassailable refuge. We're being told that the people of God who are often trampled on this earth are going to be untouchable on the new earth. We're told the gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the foundations have the names of the 12 apostles. 
In one sense, that's easy enough for us to understand. We're being told the full number of God's people will be there. His Old Testament people and his New Testament people. Together, they will make up this one city of God. But at first glance, the arrangement here seems to be backwards. What I mean is, wouldn't we expect the Old Testament tribes to be the foundation? After all, they came first, didn't they? Weren't the New Testament apostles building on that foundation? So shouldn't the apostles be the gates on top of the foundation? But when we think about it, this arrangement is actually telling us something very, very significant. It's telling us this eternal city is not built on nationality. The people of God are not defined by their physical birth. The city of God is built on the good news preached by the apostles. That is the foundation of this city. So yes, Old Testament believers came first in time. But the book of Hebrews tells us they will be part of this eternal city because they lived by faith in what was to come. Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham never saw this city, but he believed God would build it. And later, it was the apostle's job to explain how he builds it. As men and women come and put their trust in Jesus Christ, they become living stones in this city of God. So Abraham will be in the city, and Moses, and David. But they won't be there because of their physical birth into Israel. They'll be there because they lived by faith in what God would do. The Savior he would send in the future. The eternal city of God will be perfectly secure because it's built on what God has done. Not on anything human beings have done. No one is going to be there because of the family they were born into or because of the good things that they did. Those are insecure foundations. People will be in this city because they trusted in God's work of salvation. Some trusted before it happened, some trusted after. But everyone in the city will be there because of the good news preached by the apostles of the Lamb. That's our eternally secure foundation for the future. The next thing John sees is the angel measuring the city. And it turns out to be a cube. Verse 16 says it's as long as it is wide and as high as it is long. And the sides of the cube are each 12,000 stadia. The NIV has a footnote telling us that's about 1,400 miles. And this is more proof we are not being given an architectural plan 
for a city of bricks and mortar. A city that's 1,400 miles high and 1,400 miles wide. No, the point that's being shown to us is that this is a massive cube. And there's only one other cube in the Bible. The Holy of Holies. The inner room of the temple. We noticed last week that's where God's presence dwelt in the Old Testament. In a pretty small room. It didn't mean God was confined there. It meant he was only present among his people in a restricted way. It had to be restricted because of their sin. But here we're being shown this future city will be the Holy of Holies. God's presence isn't going to be hidden away in a small part of the city like it was in the old Jerusalem. God's presence will fill the new Jerusalem. That little cube-shaped room in the temple was just a token. It was just a down payment on the much greater reality still to come. One writer says, to live in heaven is to live in the holy of holies. It means we have set up our home in the holy presence of God. And what could be more secure than that? The next verses develop this idea of God's presence filling the city so that the city actually becomes a temple. We're shown that the city of God will be saturated with glory. First of all, we're told in verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. In the Old Testament, Solomon's temple was overlaid with gold. This temple city is pure gold. Down in verse 21, we're told the street of the city is pure gold. And again, we have to remember, what's being described here is the people of God in the presence of God. The city is the bride of the Lamb. So, maybe we will walk on streets of gold. But that's not what these verses are telling us. They are telling us every part of our future existence will be perfect. There's going to be nothing that's second rate or disappointing or underwhelming. That's what it means to say the walls and even the pavements are pure gold. It means our future life will be saturated with glory. Verses 19 and 20 tell us the foundations of the city are decorated with every kind of precious stone. And each of the city gates is made of a single pearl. Once again, it gets a bit ridiculous if we take this as a literal description of a gate. If the city walls are 1,400 miles high, how big must the oysters be 
to produce pearls that are going to fit those walls. Now what we have here is, is a description of what Jesus promised us. As Jesus described the end of the age, he said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The city of God will be built of living stones. And those living stones will reflect the full spectrum of God's glory. In chapter 4, John saw God's throne encircled by a rainbow. What we're discovering here is that in the future, our lives are going to make up that rainbow. We're not going to be all the same. But together, we will reflect the full richness of God's glory. And what better way to picture that than a city made of pure gold and every kind of precious stone? I heard a song once. I don't know the name of it, but there's a line in the chorus that stood out to me. It says, meet me on the back streets of heaven. The idea there seems to be that just as every city today has its shady parts, areas where secret stuff and dodgy deals go on, places where discontented people can gather, just as cities today are like that, so the song is suggesting Heaven will be like that too. Maybe it'll be low-level dodgy stuff that goes on. But the song imagines there are going to be places that are just a bit out of keeping with the rest of heaven. That's a pretty interesting idea for a song. But it's the opposite of the picture we're being given here. The biblical picture is that no corner, no square inch of this city is going to be less glorious than any other part. And since the city is a people, that means there will be no darkness or even shadow of darkness in any of our hearts. There will be no discontentment, no seeds of rebellion. This city of living stones will be saturated with glory. And it will be very clear who the glory belongs to. Look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Verse 22 is another way of saying this city is the holy of holies. No part of the city is missing God's presence. His glory is not partitioned off behind any walls. There will be no back streets in heaven. Everywhere will be equally saturated with glory. In this world, 
we are able, of course, to produce artificial light. But we're still dependent on the sun and the moon. And yet verse 23 tells us the unveiled glory of God in the new world will be so powerful and so spectacular no other light will be needed. Now the sun and moon may well be made new. They may well have a place in the new creation. But the point is we will no longer depend on them. They will be lesser lights because the light of God's glory will outshine them. We're also told the city of God will be a thriving community. Verse 24. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's very significant that when God teaches us about our future life, he chooses to picture it as a city. A place of community and relationship. For some of us that might require a bit of a rethink. Because maybe our picture of an ideal future is the farthest thing from a city. Our idea of heaven might be a cottage at the end of a long lane halfway up a mountain. But here God says to us, don't fantasize about splendid isolation. My picture of your eternal home is a city. You and I were not created to be lone rangers or lone wolves. We were created for community. That's spelled out in the Bible as early as Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Aloneness is not God's plan for us. And the point there is not everybody needs to be married. The point is everybody needs community. Jesus wasn't married, but he committed himself to community. Look at the details here. Verse 24 tells us this is a community from the nations. Human attempts to unite the nations always run into some snag. The European Union is a good example. It's looking pretty rocky these days. But our eternal city will be fully multinational. And it will have all of the cultural riches that come with that. I think that's what the rest of verse 24 tells us. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And also verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Now, no doubt this is saying that all the worship in this city is going to be directed to God. 
but there also seems to be this idea of a rich culture. The Bible doesn't tell us our personalities are all going to be flattened out in the future so that we're all like clones. Nor is there any indication in the Bible that our cultural richness is going to be flattened out. The great multitude around the throne are not going to be all one color. The worship that's offered up is not going to be all of one tone. Wasn't that part of the point of all those different jewels earlier? Every kind of precious stone makes up the city. And every kind of culture. Yes, the sin and the prejudice and the misunderstandings will all be gone. Verse 27 makes that clear. Nothing impure or shameful or deceitful will be there. That's why the gates never need to be shut. City gates were shut in order to keep intruders out. And intruders generally came under cover of darkness. But in the future, that threat will be gone. There will be only light. And there will be no one to disrupt, disrupt and destroy this community. But that purifying work is not going to produce a diminished culture. It will lead to an enhanced, enriched culture. Some of you are, have been reading Richard Bue's little book on Revelation and he says the next life will be full of relationships. That's what's pictured for us here. And so we have to ask ourselves, if that's God's plan for eternity, then surely something is seriously wrong if we avoid community now. If you're happy to exist on the fringes of Christian fellowship, then think about this vision of the city. Maybe it's time to reevaluate the way you're living. Oh, I know that our fellowship will be perfect in eternity, and I know it isn't perfect now. But aren't we to be straining towards what we will be then? The New Testament makes that point again and again. We're parts of something bigger, and every part has a contribution to make. So maybe it's time for you to take steps towards living now the way you will live then. Maybe you need to begin taking these people around you into your heart instead of keeping them at a distance. We are going to spend eternity as part of a thriving community. The former Prime Minister Lloyd George had some things to say about heaven. One of the things he said was this. When I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services. 
from which there would be no escape. I mention those words because I would guess many of us know what Lloyd George is talking about there. I would guess we wouldn't quite put it in the same way exactly. But many of us will have had a cold sweat at some point, wondering to ourselves, will it be boring? And if it is, I'm stuck forever and ever and ever and ever. Now there's one obvious comment we can make about Lloyd George's concern. If he found church services dry, that was a combination of the shortcomings of the preacher and the shortcomings of Lloyd George's own heart. Often, we preachers can make glorious things seem dull. And when we come to participate in worship, often our hearts are not as warm as they could be. In heaven, both of those deficiencies will be gone. And so worship will not be a chore for us the way it can sometimes be today. But still, having said that, and granted that our worship in heaven will not be a boring experience, we do have to ask another question. Is our experience of heaven going to be like an eternal church service? Is that the best way to picture it? I don't think so. The reason we're afraid of heaven maybe being like that is because we're not very active in church meetings. We are active, hopefully, in listening and singing and we do try to respond to what we hear. But beyond that, we don't really do anything. And yet we know, we feel that we were made for work and for activity. And so with that in mind, hopefully we can rejoice at what's inside the city of God. Because having told us about the walls and gates of the city, look what John sees inside in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Inside the city, John sees a picture of fruitful life. It turns out the new Jerusalem is also the new Eden. This picture at the very end of the Bible takes up and develops the beginning of the Bible. The tree of life is here. 
Adam and Eve never got to eat from that tree. They rebelled against God and ate the one forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were expelled from Eden before they tasted the tree of life. In God's plan, that tree would have sustained them for eternity had they eaten from it. But here in the new creation, the tree of life is accessible. And it's a perpetually fruitful tree. It produces 12 crops a year. 12 crops that are to be harvested. And that shouldn't surprise us. Genesis tells us the first man and woman were to rule over the earth. And what that involved was working it and taking care of it on God's behalf. But Adam and Eve failed because of sin. They tried to rule in place of God instead of in service to God. The whole thing fell apart. But this picture at the end of the Bible tells us that original commission is going to be fulfilled in God's new creation. Verse 3 says his servants will serve him. Verse 5 says they will reign. Those two statements explain each other. We will reign by working and taking care of God's new creation. And it will be work without the curse. It will be free from the frustrations that hinder our work today. This picture is here to liberate us from the fear that heaven might be boring. Yes, we will worship for eternity. And an element of our worship will be our work. Work that has been set free from frustration. It would certainly be over-interpreting this picture to say we're all going to be fruit pickers. That's not the point. But the point is, we will live fruitful lives in a fruitful place. We've touched on one mistake we can make about heaven. The mistake of thinking that it might be boring. But these final verses help us avoid another mistake that's even worse than the first one. The mistake of thinking heaven is going to be all about us. I think it's fair to say many Christians don't really think much about heaven. It doesn't enter their heads that often. But when we do get thinking about it, we often then begin to speculate about it. Will we find our favorite things there? Will we meet our pets again? People are concerned about that kind of thing. I'm not saying that's bad. Will we have tea with Moses and Elijah? All that kind of stuff. And I suppose there is some value in asking those questions and thinking about them. But what can happen is that we end up with an idea of heaven where God is just as marginalized in our lives as he is today. We think of heaven with our current 
fallen imaginations and we come up with a picture that's just like our lives today. Minus the health problems and the bills. It's all about us. What we're going to do, where we're going to go, who we're going to see. And God ends up as a peripheral figure in the picture. But look again how these verses correct that idea. In the middle of verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. The city we are looking forward to is the city of God. His throne is the center of that city. His glory will be the light of the city. And his face will be what captivates us and satisfies us. It's all the other things that will be marginal. The people we might meet, the things we might do. God himself will be the central thing. There's an old hymn that says, face to face. Oh, blissful moment. Face to face to see and know. Face to face with my Redeemer. Jesus Christ who loves me so. We will live fruitful lives in the new creation. They will be fruitful like never before. And they will be fruitful because... They're centered on God like never before. He is the glory of the new creation. Let's pray.